Hello, and welcome to a very special two-part installment of the Lancet Infectious Diseases podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. In a moment, you'll hear from Richard Lane, who earlier this month interviewed Dr. Mike Osterholm, an author of a study published online first on seasonal influenza vaccines. After that, Richard Lane and Raffaella Basurgi highlight some key papers from the November issue of the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Over to Richard Lane. Hello and welcome to the Lancet Infectious Diseases podcast. And this time we're discussing what is the true efficacy and effectiveness of influenza vaccines. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of a study published online on Wednesday, October the 26, 2011, Dr. Mike Osterholm from the University of Minnesota in the United States. Dr. Osterholm, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Infectious Diseases. This is a meta-analysis looking at the efficacy and effectiveness of seasonal influenza vaccines. First of all, why don't you just tell us the key take-home messages from the study, and then we'll go back and look at the study in a bit more detail. This study, which was the most exhaustive review to date of the efficacy and effectiveness of influenza vaccines from 1967 to this current year, found that, first of all, while the vaccine does work, and we still recommend that it be used, it does not demonstrate the kinds of efficacy levels we often have reported for those over age 65. There are are real gaps in the information that we have for those uh, as young, healthy adults, and that we surely need to develop new and better vaccines to fill these gaps. Uh, The other thing that we found is that actually we know children serve as a very important role in disseminating influenza viruses around the community, and the more recently licensed live attenuated flu vaccine appears to work very well in that group, and yet it's never been preferentially recommended. We could actually have potentially a much greater impact on influenza if we were to really encourage the use of a live attenuated vaccine in that group. Thank you very much indeed. And now let's just take a step back and look at the study in a little more detail. What was the aim of this specific study, though? It is a meta-analysis. What was the objective here? Well, to date, there's been no published meta-analyses that have actually assessed the efficacy or effectiveness of the vaccines using really sensitive and highly specific diagnostic tests to confirm influenza. There have been a number of studies done that tried to estimate the the effectiveness of the vaccine, but what they measured in terms of outcome, meaning did people really have influenza, did they have other respiratory illnesses, was a real problem. And these studies that we found out of 5,700 articles and studies we uh, reviewed, we ended up uh, determining just a very, very small percentage really give us the really important and solid information around influenza, and we concentrated on those. Those studies, we think, uh, give us the best estimates of, of what we can expect from these vaccines. And just to pick up on a couple of points there, just so we're clear and listeners are clear, the stringent criteria you used to exclude most of the papers that you found through your research was because you were looking for laboratory-confirmed influenza. Is that right? Correct. We actually had a number of criteria that were uh, required for a study to actually be included. That meant, for example, something as simple as uh, in randomized controlled trials uh, where uh, one group gets the vaccine, the other group gets a placebo or uh, some other non-influenza vaccine treatment, that in fact there was no selection bias so that people couldn't favor uh, one group getting the vaccine healthier people or younger people than the other. We also uh, looked at vaccines actually in clinical practice, meaning not just these randomized controlled trials, but studies that were done where patients were routinely vaccinated and they looked to see over a course of a year who developed influenza and not. 
And again, we had a number of requirements that made sure that investigators, even unintentionally, did not allow some kind of bias or some kind of influence on the outcomes to, to occur. So these studies really represent the very best of all the studies that have been done that allow us to comment on the impact of this vaccine. Briefly just comment on the difference in terminology here, just so people are clear. I don't think we need to get too caught up in it. The distinction between efficacy and effectiveness, I'm assuming you mean efficacy in terms of the results found in the randomized trials and effectiveness, which is a more generic term um, from a less stringent setting such as observational studies. Is that right? Exactly. Vaccine efficacy studies are the most stringent of reviews of the performance of a vaccine. In these uh, studies, Individuals are actually randomized blindly to either vaccine or placebo or some other treatment effect, and neither the investigators or the patients know uh, who received uh, the vaccine or the, treat- or the other treatment. And in this case, uh, these studies are really the gold standard, but sometimes they're not realistic in ex- understanding what will happen in clinical practice. These kinds of environments actually are involved with what we call observational studies, where everyone who would come in to get vaccinated would get vaccinated, and then we follow over time to see who develops illness and who doesn't. And then at that point, we have to do additional analyses, for example, matching on age or underlying risk factors, uh, making sure that people who were known to be vaccinated didn't get preferential testing or less testing than those who weren't vaccinated. And yet, uh, while observational studies are not as stringently uh, controlled as efficacy studies, uh, they still can give us a great deal of information that can be quite reliable. Let's focus now on the results in detail. You gave the top-line results at the top of the podcast here. Overall, what do these results in this meta-analysis tell us about, in general, the efficacy of seasonal influenza vaccines? And, And your study, we should state, focused on seasonal influenza vaccines used in the United States, though, of course, they are generalizable to other populations as well, aren't they? We actually looked at uh, both seasonal influenza vaccines used in the United States, but we also included an analysis of the 2009 pandemic influenza vaccine that was used because there were such good studies done both in Europe and the United States. And so we also did, under the observational study category, look at those vaccines. In total, we reviewed over 5,700 studies or articles, and we identified only 31 eligible studies. In other words, they met all the criteria. 17 of these were randomized controlled trials, and 14 were the observational studies or the effectiveness studies. Overall, we found that with the trivalent inactivated vaccine, the shot, that only 8 of 12 different studies analyzed in the area of the trivalent vaccine actually ever demonstrated that the vaccine was effective in those 18 to 65 years of age. Those that did show it was effective had uh, an average of about 59% protection. Not the ideal that we think of when we think of childhood immunizations of 90 plus percent protection, but still a very important public health intervention. 59% is is a lot better than zero. So just to clarify, yes, around 60% then in general. So getting on for two thirds. But unfortunately, we didn't find any trials that actually provided us with what we thought was the state-of-the-art information in children aged 2 to 17 or adults over age 65. And uh, while the children surely are important, we all know that those over age 65 are the uh, group that we worry most about in terms of severe disease, including uh, death. And so that we really need much more information in this area about the impact of the vaccine, but more likely we just need new and better vaccines. When we looked at the observational studies, those done in the clinical setting, 
uh, the same problems existed. There were really a relative absence of information about the impact of the vaccine in those over age 65. And from what other studies we referenced in the work that were not either efficacy or observational studies, but analyses that tried to look at the impact of the vaccine in those over age 65, it's clear that there is some limited impact, but far, far below what we need uh, with an effective influenza vaccine. And finally, Dr. Osterholm, an obvious question, and I realize you're not a, a policy expert, that's not your job, but there are clear implications for policy are there or are there not, do you think, from this study? Because you said at the top of the podcast that collectively the current available influenza vaccines are playing an important role in public health in terms of the prevention of influenza. That's clear. But what, what do you think the implications are, particularly for elderly people? Because certainly in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, there will be a lot of people around the age of 65 years and over who will be routinely going to see their physician to have a flu vaccination. Is there a policy implication here saying, actually, that's not necessary? No, I think it's very important that uh, based on the track record of substantial safety and moderate efficacy in many seasons, we believe that the current influenza vaccine should continue to play a role in the reduction of influenza morbidity, uh, even in those over age 65. However, we clearly demonstrated that we need new and better vaccines. And one of the additional areas that we have been investigating and will be released shortly after this report is a study looking at what are the deterrents to getting new vaccines. The problem is we have a perception in many parts of the world that we have a vaccine that is effective, it's cheap, and that it's one that uh, is doing the job. And while it is doing a job, uh, I liken it more to the fact that this is kind of an iPhone 1.0. We need an iPhone 10.0. And what we're finding is, is that until we change the perception that we have now is good enough, and that we really incentivize the private sector, venture capital, government agencies to really uh, make it a high priority to come up with new and better vaccines that may be more costly in the end for us to use, but are going to have a, a superior protection over these vaccines. Until that happens, we're really stuck with a vaccine that has been around for over 60 years and not changed much. And we just can't continue that. We need better tools. In the meantime, keep using the tool that we do have. So, Dr. Osterholm, if I understand correctly from your iPhone analogy there, is one of the problems, if you like, that we've got is that if we accept the current state of play, if we accept an influenza vaccine that's been around for, for many decades now as being sufficient, we're not going to build up enough traction for the research and ultimately a better vaccine to come in and, and fill in the gaps that we've got, the main gap being efficacy in the over 65s. The real challenge we have today is not to say, should we or should we not use the current vaccines? We should use them. But th also by using them and promoting them as we do, we clearly give the perception that this is what we need and this is all we need. And what we're suggesting here is that it is an important tool now, but it is clearly not a, a, a fully an effective tool that we could have, meaning we need better vaccines. We learned during the last pandemic again that we could not supply this vaccine in substantial quantities when we needed it for that second wave. We also learned that even using the European vaccines, which are adjuvanted or a chemical added to boost the immune response, that the protection levels still were far, far below what we believe is necessary to respond to a pandemic, meaning that protections of the 50 and 60 percent level are not 90 percent. Everyone in public health would tell you that a vaccine that is 60 percent effective is surely much, much better than one that's not at all. 
But in influenza, we need vaccines that can give us much higher levels of protection, more like we expect to see with our childhood immunization vaccines that give us 90 to 95 percent protection. And we need to assure that that protection occurs with all age groups, from birth to the, those over age 65. And until we really make it a priority to get new vaccines and to support their research and development and their market sales after they come out, we will be still talking about a 60-year-old vaccine technology 20 or 30 years from now. And if there's no other message that this paper gets out there and gets across, is, is that the time is now to reprioritize and make it a priority to get new and better vaccines. Dr. Michael Osterholm on the line from the University of Minnesota in the United States. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Thank you very much. And now, the second part of The Lancet Infectious Diseases podcast. Richard Lane and Raffaella Basergi with some highlights from the November issue. Richard Lane here. And first of all to say we have a new person on the podcast for TLID. Delighted to be joined by Raffaella Basergi. Welcome, Raffaella. Great to have you with us. Great pleasure. Let's start off with a research article that's actually a meta-analysis, and it's trying to assess the potential value of a new antimicrobial, mm -hmm. tigercycline. What's the clinical issue here? Multidrug resistance among bacteria is associated to an increased mortality and morbidity and length and cost of hospital stay. Today, the classic agents that are used are outdated and there is a great need of new um, potent and efficacious drug to treat multidrug infections among bacteria. And tagisacline is a new candidate drug. It belongs to the glycylcycline antimicrobial class of these kind of drugs. And the way it works is really interesting because it enters the cells, binds to the 30S subunit of the ribosome, inhibiting the protein synthesis. Essentially, is a protein inhibitor, but the way it does this is very particular because it's got a high specificity compared to the normal drugs that are normally used. In this meta-analysis, Tassina and colleagues, they're trying to assess the efficacy of this new drug in the treatment of severe infectious bacteria in adult patients. Briefly summarize how they've done this study, the methodology and the key results. This is a meta-analysis, as I said. This is a confirmatory study of a previous meta-analysis published seven months ago Bakai and colleagues. The difference this time is that the authors are including unpublished data. And of course, by inclusion of unpublished data, they might found a way to make their findings stronger. Essentially, both researchers group reached the same conclusion. Tagisacline is no more effective than standard antimicrobial agent treatment. It's got more adverse events it could be is associated to an increased mortality, even though this effect was not significant. So that's the main findings, which sadly is negative and present clinicians with dilemma on whether or not tagisacline should be used in the treatment of these severe bacterial infections. But what makes tagisacline a really good candidate are two things. The first one is Tagisaglin is very is effective in most of gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. It targets, as I said, two major resistant mechanisms, ribosomal protection and efflux pump mechanism. This makes tagisaglin a good candidate in the treatment of multidrug-resistant pathogens. The second 
important aspect of tagisacline is that has got an excellent safety for the liver and for the kidney. Therefore, is a better candidate compared to vancomycin in the treatment of multidrug resistant in patients that could have kidney and liver implication insufficiency. Sadly, as you said, although the main result is a negative result. One of the points the authors make is the importance of the inclusion of non-published mm. data when doing such a meta-analysis. Do you just want to comment on that? Because that is important, isn't it? Yeah, it's very important because, I mean, the previous meta-analysis, I mean, if you include more unpublished data and more a new clinical trial, you have more material to assess the safety and efficacy of the drug. So I think that's the novel aspect of this study compared to the CHI and league's previous meta-analysis. The results are stronger. It's a confirmatory study, but it's showing that tagisacline is no more effective and has got more adverse events. The importance of the study is that for the first time, it can be considered as a, the latest safety and effectiveness information of tagisacline. And of course, authors, by including non-unpublished data, stress the need of more randomized trials of tagisacline are needed to assess risk and benefit of this new drug. And next, another research article, and this is looking at a very important area. It's looking at the efficacy of a diagnostic test for tuberculosis, but specifically in children in areas where HIV is endemic. Tell us about the aim of this study. As we know, tuberculosis is a leading cause of mortality in HIV population worldwide, with almost 2 million deaths every year. Diagnostic techniques have got many limitations. In developing countries, normally smear microscopy is used, but it's got a very variable sensitivity. In developed countries, culture methods are mostly adopted. They require huge infrastructure, so their use in developing countries could be limited because they could be highly costly. Diagnosis in children for you know tuberculosis is even more complicated. In 2010, WHO did recommend the use of a new test called Expert MTBRIF, a real-time PCR that detects DNA for mycobacterial tuberculosis. There was in 2010 a big study that proved this test is really efficacious in adult patients, but it's never been tested in children. So the novelty of this study is testing the test in children in countries that have high prevalence of tuberculosis and HIV. Thank you very much indeed. Just a very quick summary of the methods and the key findings here. Nicole and colleagues' study, as I said, is the first to report the accuracy of expert MTB tests in children. The study was done in South Africa. 452 children were enrolled and induced putin was an effective approach for managing the collection of the sample. So the results are showing that the sensitivity of the test increase when a second induced putum is collected. This actually showing that in children you need a second induced putum to increase the sensitivity of the test. This would lead to an increase in cost, which is an issue in developing countries. Therefore, the most important message, first of all, the test works in children. The pediatric guidelines should include definitely information on how to use the test and uh, more studies on the cost effectiveness 
of the test should be carried to develop new way of improving the test in developing countries. And finally, Raffaella, let's discuss briefly a review, and this concerns multi-strain resistance. And a very interesting read it is too. Just remind us what the clinical issue is here. Infections frequently contain multiple uh, strains of the same pathogen, and they are treated usually as they were an uniform entity. Authors in this review try to assess how prevalent um, multiple strain infections in disease-causing protozoa, bacteria, fungi and viruses are. So far, multiple strain infections have been recorded for 51 human pathogens, 21 human animal pathogens. They are really increasing because, you know, to detect them, you need available molecular biology techniques. So they're really, the, the review is showing they're not an exception anymore, but they're becoming a norm. Becoming the norm, exactly. Yeah. And, and what is the effect of these multi-strain infections? What, what, yeah. what effect can they have? Of course, the clinical implication on having multiple strain infections is that you have different strains that react to drugs in a different way. Understanding and uh, assessing the prevalence of multiple strain infection will help clinicians to tailor clinical interventions better. Uh, what multiple strain infection do essentially is overwhelming the host immune system posing really complex immune changes. For example, people with HIV-1, multiple strain infection is associated with more rapid disease progression from seroconversion to clinical AIDS, four years instead of eight, ten years. And the mechanism, you know, behind this is not yet known. So what do the authors of this review conclude? What's the message for people working in the ID field concerning this topic? The main message of the review is that, of course, as I said, the multiple strain infection